The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Voice America. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. We're in for, I think, a very uh, illuminating hour. Our guest today is Ben Boone, and uh, Ben is the author of The Minority of the Mind, which details a young man's descent into darkness and his daily struggles to perform as a person rather than a manifestation of his illness. Ben addresses how society treats those with serious psychiatric disorders and challenges our definition of madness. Ben shares a journey few are able to take much less talk about. After graduating from college, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and offered himself up as a test subject in dozens of research studies at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts hospitals. Ben is now in his early 30s, and he has graduated with a degree in writing and literature from Emerson College in Boston. Ben wrote his first book at age 17 um, entitled Tracks, which was about his experience on European trains, and then he wrote a book the West Indian Way, which details adventures in the Caribbean. Ben currently lives in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and he is our guest today. And Ben, I want to congratulate you for having the courage to write this book. Um, You're able to articulate how someone experiences schizophrenia and major mental illness in a way that um, people truly don't understand. So you're doing a lot of people a great service with your candor and insight. Well, I really appreciate you having me today, Mary. It's great to be able to share my story. What made you decide to take the risk of, of writing the book? Well, and actually, kind of coming I had, out, I had, so to speak. Yeah, I had been a test subject uh, for the stu- subject of the, for the topic of mental illness at uh, many different Massachusetts and Harvard medical schools. And I had started doing that research, and one of the research studies that I participated in involved a study for journal entries um, to detail my day. So I went from that journal study and continued to write my, my story. Maybe you could share with our listeners a little bit about your journey from um, when you, before you first got ill until now. Yeah, I, had just, I was just graduating from school, and uh, things started to get a little bit um, my thoughts became disorganized, and uh, my emotions felt as though they were falling asleep. Um, I started to forget things, smell strange smells. Around that time, my last semester going to school, I visited my parents in the Virgin Islands, and they began to notice that I wasn't well. They noticed that I was sleeping all day and that I didn't seem like the same son. Um, they asked me questions about why I was acting so um, depressed, why, why my emotions were so flat. 
And so around that time, I went back to school to graduate, and my parents suggested that I go to the hospital to get checked for a possibly some kind of psychiatric condition. Um, it happened. I was, I was um, actually, I went to the, the hospital t- the day after graduation. Um, I didn't make it to the stage to make my diploma, although I did graduate. Um, I, I ended up being in the auditorium at Emerson College where I went to school and couldn't function enough to get up on the stage. Um, they found me wandering in the lobby of the, of the Wang Theater as Ted Turner gave the keynote, speech, keynote address. And was that your first time? Had you ever, like, had feelings of depression before then, then, or had you, you know, had any other kind of hallmarks? Um, because, well, it seems like it happens overnight. Sometimes there's kind of little things that, that people don't notice before they have sy- symptoms as severe as yours. Yeah. It's called the pre-drummal period in schizophrenia, and there was a lot of social withdrawal throughout school. Um, the things that gave me pleasure um, didn't excite me anymore. Um, were you ever tempted to, like, you know, use drugs or whatever to get that excitement back? Were you conscious of all this happening? or? Yes, um, it was very frightening. Um, the more frightened I became, the worse it got because I started to be unable to trust, trust my own mind. Um, I never used drugs in college. Um, i never never been addicted to a substance. However, when I was first diagnosed, um, I had met some people um, who smoked uh, marijuana. And so I tried it, and it had a miraculous effect on my illness. Um, My mind cleared. Um, I felt as though part of my personality was coming back. Um, And that's something in schizophrenia that that is the initial, um, as I said, pre-dromal, is that the ego disintegrates. Um, You start to lose sense of who you are as a person. That must be frightening. It is. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to fear uh, one's mind, um, what it's, what's about to happen. It's almost as though you feel like your thoughts are going so fast that they're going to be in a collision. And, um, and then the end result is this kind of daze um, where you just feel kind of this blankness come in the place of not only of who you felt you were as a person, but also in your functional abilities to just do day-to-day tasks. How do you communicate that, Ben? How do you how do you help other people understand I, what you're going through? Yeah, well, that's the reason why I wrote Minority of Mind. Um, I was hoping that I mean I have my own problems of reasoning and perception, but I'm but what I can bring to the table is to tell my own story and to hope that I can I can come up with some creative solutions to help people. Actually, I do some life and peer counseling work, um, and I also do motivational speaking throughout Massachusetts. You know, I think um, it's wonderful that you're doing it because I think a lot of people have a misconception about people who experience schizophrenia or other thought disorders that, in some way, that they they become they become their illness, and that oftentimes people don't look beyond the symptoms of the illness to see the person. And, and so many times, like in movies, um, someone with schizophrenia is per- portrayed as being out of control or homicidal or whatever. So there's, there's a lot of uh, stigma and discrimination that comes along with um, having a mental illness. 
You're absolutely right. And that's um, somewhat the fault of the stigma and discrimination is somewhat the fault of people, but it's also the fault of society, as you said. Um, the movies that, that portray people with schizophrenia or any mental illness, for that matter, um, there's really an ignorance about the illness. And it's oftentimes I've encountered people who think that it has something to do with split personality disorder. Right, right, right. Um, I'm a registered nurse, and 100 years ago when I was in nursing school, one of the things that we were taught was that uh, people who experience schizophrenia, their life gets worse over time. And it was pretty much, it was a very depressing um, illness to have. And the treatment community didn't hold out a lot of hope for, for people with schizophrenia. And um, and I think one of the great things that's happening now is that the whole concept of recovery from mental illness and that people can learn to manage their symptoms is, um, I think, is creating, I don't know, more opportunities for people. What do you think about that? Well, it is very discouraging for treaters, and it's also discouraging for the patients. Um, because so much is unknown about schizophrenia, um, there's a there's a, a terrible um, discrimination sometimes by psychiatrists who just see the, the misery stories, and they don't see that there is a life that can be led, a rich life that can be led. Um, as one of my friends said, the, show's, the show must go on. And it's very easy to say that, um, obviously. Um, it's just it's so terribly difficult just to get out of bed in the morning, um, not just because of the illness, but also because of the loss of one's relationship to society. And um, what, what can be done are creative solutions, uh, positive people, positive places, new experiences, um, positive environment. All those are the foundations that can lead someone to get better. Um, can you speak a little bit more? What's a positive environment? How do you define that? Positive environment would definitely be something that includes the, not only what you surround yourself with, um, calming a calming place to be um, away from the, the noise in the mind, but also the people that surround you as well. And the people that surround you um, should be some, something that you get, a, you get something from that illuminates your own story as a person and, your, and, and also to get you better. Um, also putting good positive, putting good things in your body, you know, treating your body as though it, it, it is an organic process that will help your mind as well. In your book you talk about um, smoking and, yeah. and not, versus not smoking. And um, Can you talk a little bit about your experience with Smoking tobacco? Yeah. Um, well, it's a fact that half of the U.S. cigarette market is, um, is, 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 smoke, is smoked by people with mental illness. Um, it's a huge problem in, in mental illness. There's some, there's some research say, saying that it helps improve concentration. Um, despite my experience through quitting smoking, um, that it doesn't improve concentration. What it does is it creates... Um, a rhythmical kind of orientation to what's around you, that you're doing something and that you have some kind of tangible grasp on the reality around you. The, um, the thing about smoking cigarettes and schizophrenia that's so difficult is that oftentimes when one quits smoking cigarettes, the symptoms of schizophrenia um, become much worse. And does that last? No, it eventually goes away. Um, in fact, in, in place of that, it becomes a calming, a much more calm mind 
away from addiction. Um, and we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Ben. If you have any questions, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is... Benjamin Boone, who has been sharing with us uh, the journey in his life since the time he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And this is so important for everybody to understand that, um, that schizophrenia and other illnesses are brain diseases, and they're chronic illnesses, and they can be managed very similar to people that have diabetes or heart disease or hypertension. And in Ben's case, he's someone who got treatment early and he got early intervention. And that's really the key um, in managing a lot of these um, these brain diseases. The earlier folks can get into treatment, um, the the better the outcome and the less blip there is in terms of their of their life and um, and the the goals that they want to accomplish. And I just want to uh, commend you then because um, we need to hear more stories like this. And it would be probably good for our listeners if you could maybe read a short excerpt from your book so they get a sense of of what your message is. Definitely. That would be wonderful. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, How about I start with the beginning of my book to give you a little backstory on my experiences and also um, a little bit of uh, where I went after after I graduated from Emerson College. Great. Yeah, so here's an excerpt, Minority of Mind, Chapter 1, A Separate Mind. I wrote a book when I was 17 years old about traveling the trains of Europe alone. 
I was a publishing major at Emerson College in Boston, a student at one of the country's top schools for communication. I thought I'd be a successful writer. Instead, the day after my graduation, I found myself in a hospital bed, unable to communicate rationally with anyone. That was a decade ago. Since then, I've been hospitalized about nine times, one on Christmas and a New Year's, my dad's birthday and Valentine's, but none have been quite like that May morning my parents first took me to McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. It was the day after my graduation ceremony when I bolted out of the row with the other graduates. They found me wandering in the lobby of the theater while Ted Turner was giving the keynote address. I was still wearing my cap and gown, but I never made it to the stage to accept my diploma. It has now been four months since my last hospitalization. Outside the hospital, I look pretty much like everyone else, but I struggle not to end up back in a ward. The pleasantries of being in public are important to me. Saying hello or good morning makes me feel like I'm a part of society. Sometimes I feel stripped of any worth for having mental illness, so I deceive people about who I am. My best friend doesn't know I struggle for sanity every day. When I've gone to the hospital, I've said that I'm on vacation. So this is the beginning. This is this is the beginning of the book, and I go on from there to talk um, a little bit about my aspirations and how it was very difficult to achieve um, a place in society that I'd always wanted to be. I've always wanted to get to uh, the expectations I had coming out of college. Um, I have a couple of uh, things to say in response to that. That's very powerful in terms of, um, you know, what what it's like to have your life change so suddenly, yeah. and um, to have kind of a detour in, in your in your life in terms of your aspirations. Is there a is there like a grieving that, that is involved in this then, or absolutely? Absolutely, yeah, okay. it's a grieving because there are two. There are two illnesses. There's not just schizophrenia. There's also a loss and an illness that's created by being not being a, feeling a part of society anymore. And that loss is one that's that that's on top of schizophrenia. It's compounded with loss after loss of friends, um, devastating consequences for families. Those are all part of another illness as well. Just the isolation is is an illness in some respects. Absolutely, just the isolation, um, the feelings that you're not a part of society's values, that somehow you've betrayed society, um, that you're no longer part of a sane mind. And it's been my experience with some of the folks that I know who um, experience schizophrenia is when they have a lot of symptoms, their ability to communicate is um, diminished. So not only do they feel isolated, um, they don't. They don't even feel like they speak the same language that the rest of the world speaks, and so it, it's it's equally um, devastating for them. Yes, um, it's 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 uh, it's it's something that society not only not only the illness but also society causes because what happens is is that the person begins to shut down because they can't fulfill. Um, they feel as though they cannot fulfill the expectations that they have to be members of a working a working mind, they're put into a separate mind, and that's not the way it should be. It should be realized that we share the same mind and that the, in sharing the same mind, we share the same struggles. Um, it's an, it should be an inclusive, an inclusive mind, which is we share the same struggles of love, belonging. Um, these are archetypes of the human story. 
why do you think it is that um, that there is that separation? I think that what society has has made as a structure um, has has really not only does it alienate the suffering from its from society, I think that's caused by people alienating the suffering from themselves, and that people don't want to experience the human story and all its in all its pain. Um, that human story wants to be banished in in a, a public display of privilege or of of some kind of projection that life is great, and that has that has caused a lot of negative consequences. One of the things that I think um, that, that I've noticed too is that oftentimes, um, as a as a treatment provider, I've seen other treatment providers see people and to find people by their illness. Like when I was in nursing school, we used to talk about the gallbladder in room 302 or um, the, the hysterectomy in room 308. And so that, do you ever experience that? Do you ever experience um, healthcare professionals treating you like an illness instead of a person? Well, you're absolutely right, is that uh, someone's soul is not mentally ill. And right. just... Just as just as um, you have a, another disease like diabetes or something like that, you're not diabetes. If you have a sprained right. toe, you're not your sprained toe. Sometimes those things can overwhelm you and have those emotional effects and those effects of self uh, effects on the on your your ego and your your person your personality. But the trick is to be able to direct your illness, accommodate the illness so that you can lead a rich, productive life. Can you I have, I have experienced, I'm sorry, I have, experienced, I have experienced some of the stigma. Um, actually, I really call it stigma by, by, psychiat- by psychiatric, not only, the, not only psychiatrists, but also the method of treatment. Um, what happens is that people, people have stories. People have stories that are interrupted by mental illness. And it's almost like a story with scattered pages on the floor. And oftentimes in psychiatry with the method is that those pages are put together in alphabetical order rather than taking into consideration the character and the plot of the person's story. And that occurs through um, a dehumanizing method, one that's extremely objective and doesn't take into account the individual. How does that feel, Ben, when that happens? It It feels as though... I'm not a person anymore. It feels as though I don't have any worth um, to, to something that's bigger than I am. I just feel it makes. Me, I just feel so alone, and I feel so alone that that I don't have any connection to other people that um, that that really can treat me as one of their own. That I'm alienated from society. Does it affect? your ability to advocate for yourself in your own treatment? Absolutely not. Um, I, I, I have, uh, I, I, one of the reasons why I wrote Minority of Mind was to, I, there's one particular chapter called Excluding Reason. And um, that, in that chapter, it takes on a lot of um, some of the psychiatric stigma and <clears throat> some of the wrong methods of treatment. What do you think works the best? What type of treatment has worked the best for you? I've had amazing treaters. Amazing treaters. It's been a tremendous science that's helped me. 
And it's, it is very discouraging for treaters because so much, so little is, little, little is known about the illness. Um, the things that have helped me are, are sharing stories. Um, by telling, telling stories of my past, I feel like it creates the story of my future. So the um, providers who listen... Yeah, absolutely. P- providers that listen. Um, I've had some great therapists, and I've had some that haven't been very helpful at all. Um, would you like me to tell you a story about one particular, one particular um, experience I had? Sure. Great. Okay. Um, I had an experience with a doctor um, at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. And um, I'll start off by saying that I had a best friend in, in, um, in high school who committed suicide. And he was a great guy. He used to give my friends rides up to all different places. And I started to notice that he was looking around strangely at parties. He would, he would look kind of dazed. But I just thought, you know, maybe that's just, you know, some passing thing. And, and so um, the day after, um, well, the, um, when he went to college, he shot himself. And I didn't have a chance really to mourn at the time. I was kind of stunned, and it never really hit me completely. Until one day I saw an issue of teenage suicide in the newspapers. So I went to therapy, and I started talking about teenage suicide. And I talked about um, my friend and how he had committed suicide, and I was very upset. I was emotional. Um, I was a suicide counselor in high school, and I counseled people in high school of, um, why, you know, to, you know, trying not to have them commit suicide and, of course, the tragedy of my friend who I couldn't help. And, um, and so he, my doctor, who came from Spain, he had a little bit of a language barrier, he heard suicide and in his bureaucracy of hearing that, thought that I was a suicide risk. So he said that he would commit me to the hospital. And I was completely stunned. Um, it was right there at the... I was looking at it from a dull perspective that maybe my friend was mentally ill like I was now. That was my realization. So I was brought to uh, a substandard hospital in Massachusetts that was under investigation. Um, also, a Boston Globe story had been conducted on it as well. The, the people in the wards, um, the men in the wards, had weak old beards because the shavers were broken. Uh, there were no clean towels. But I had my parents, who were great advocates, and they flew. They were living in the Virgin Islands. And they flew up to Pembroke Hospital um, the day after I, I was admitted. And they called my doctor and they asked him, how did they, why did he let this happen? Um, he didn't call them back. So my mother called the Boston Globe, who had written the article, and she began to uh, find out more and more about Pembroke Hospital. It's a hellish place, she had found out, and demanded that I be removed from the hospital or she would consider it malpractice. So they transferred me back to McLean. They transferred me to McLean Hospital, and within 72 hours of being there, they could find no reason for me to be in the hospital, and so they released me. Of course, my doctor was no longer my doctor when I, I left the hospital. Wow, that's very powerful. It's yeah, like- it, it, but that experience shows it really shows Mary how how people can be victims of bureaucracy and they can be victims of just a textbook kind of sanity. And that's not a story. That's not a person's story. That's not a character. The textbook mm-hmm. sanity and the textbook method, the alphabetically arranging pages, um, doesn't create a progression of plot to a person's life. Um, 
we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Ben and um, have him share with us some of the things he does to manage his mental illness to get him to be the articulate um, man that he is. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Benjamin Boone, who is sharing with us his journey um, from the time he was diagnosed with schizophrenia until today, and he's written a book that chronicles this, um, and I think that uh, it might be good to read another passage from your book, Ben. Oh, wonderful. Terrific. Yeah, um, I, I have a... I have a uh, a little bit. We've been talking a little bit about my illness um, from the perspective of of what of what's been what the background is. Um, but how about we talk a little bit about where I am now and um, how things have been improving in my life? That's great. So I'll read you the afterword of my book because this was written um, this was written after a lot of progress had been made after a lot of realizations. So this is the afterword. For years, the voices in my head said I was like a former chef on food stamps, like a dishwasher without one, like someone who pumped gas not having any car to drive. I've been mentally disabled and needed help, but I've been helping others now and finding meaning to my illness. I've decided to go out and find a perspective beyond the shame and sadness I have felt for having schizophrenia. This has been awakening for me a decade after my diagnosis. During the day after my first admission to McLean Hospital, I gradually realized I was in the center of a room in a hospital bed. I could hear the crinkle of a plastic mattress. My pillow felt strange, sanitary, in a dirty way, like I was the one who would make it dirty. I saw a face through a square piece of glass on the door every 15 minutes. I could hear a murmur of voices outside, went in and out of sleep. One of the first things I noticed upon waking was a jade plant. My parents bought it for me. 
It looked like a million get-well cards and flowers, but had just a green color. I finally felt safe and cared for, and put my trust that something would be done to help me inside. I moved into a halfway house three weeks after graduation and became exposed to very different people than I ever would have known. People were all very sick around me. In lucid moments, some told me their stories. I listened and tried to draw from my compassion. I still had my own hate and horrors to live through, and now I have my own stories to tell. I wanted to volunteer my time to social initiatives because these horrors are always on my mind. They plague me like soul-seeking vengeance. Sometimes I feel the object of their sadness and anger, like forgetting the stories I heard in that halfway house is ignoring those who suffer. I think about the identities given to those who need help. There is a belief that the poor and disabled don't contribute, that they are not the ones who lead society to progress. But their experience of tragedy in life and the struggle within for love and belonging is an archetype, part of the story we all share. This is a sane story, one that should not be excluded. I cannot ignore my struggle because it is on my mind every day as mental illness, the way I'm pressed to my pillows as a faith that I can't contribute. But I can focus on what happens inside, away from my clouded mind. I can be part of society and contribute by living a dedicated life, even when society's purpose and progress are, of course. During the past year of volunteering, I've heard many people's stories that made me realize the universality of the human experience. We all face adversity in different ways. Pain should not be ignored in a public display of privilege. Our hardship should be shared. This is the only way to make sense of the human struggle and give meaning to it in mental health. So that's the afterword of my book, Minority. Very powerful. Very powerful, Ben. What are the things you do on a daily basis to help you help other people? I have, well, as I said before, I've been doing some life coaching. Um, I speak over the telephone talking about daily issues, daily, daily routines, how to improve energy. Um, energy is a crucial thing, and um, having energy and mental illness is crucial. There are creative solutions um, to, some, to some problems that, that we encounter. A little bit of a trickery is involved, actually. Um, so some of the things that, that I talk about in, in, um, in life coaching and peer counseling is, um, is really celebrating... Being, celebrating being with oneself because so oftentimes oneself is consumed by mental illness. So congratulating yourself um, rather than the negative relation to the illness is very important. Um, I go through a lot of that rebuilding, rebuilding ties with oneself, um, trying to rebuild ties with oneself because when you rebuild ties with oneself, a, di- a dynamic character comes into play where you can have a relationship to society again. And that's one of the most crucial things of, of treating, treating recovery from mental illness. It's really about joining, isn't it? It is. It's about, it's, it, mental illness is, in a, is oftentimes treated um, as an alone struggle just by, the di- just by the method of diagnosing it, that you hear voices and that you see things, and schizophrenia. And that creates the struggle that no one knows about. It's completely isolated. So what I've tried to do, the way I've gotten better, is to seek out the known struggles, seek out the pains of life that everyone shares, sane or insane. Um, those, are the, those are the ways, those are the areas of the human experience that not only can you learn from life, but you can also learn about how society and how everyone else lives as well. What role does exercise and nutrition play in your recovery? That's been extremely crucial for me. Um, I'd say that that's uh, 
one of those foundations we talked about earlier, about not only the positive people, the positive places, the new experiences, but also what you put into your body. So many times mental illness is something that's attributed to unhealth, and it is. Um, diet, poor diet, drug use, cigarettes, all those things do not help you make, better, make you better. They keep you in bed. That's what they do. They take your energy away. And that's the last thing that, that we as mentally ill people need. So what's put into the body is extremely crucial. Um, I run. Um, I run every day, um, miles, miles and miles a day. And um, it, it really, that sets the stage. I do that first thing in the morning when I wake up. And that sets the stage for my day. It creates an outlook, a positive outlook. Um, and what about nutrition? Do you do anything special or do you avoid anything? Or? Yeah, well, um, I've always been a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian since I was about 10 years old. Um, nutrition's always been something that's important to me. Um, I did gain about 80 pounds, though, when I was first diagnosed because I was on Zeprexa. Uh, which they later okay. found out, um, you know, causes serious problems. And um, I wasn't in the, I wasn't eating that much. Um, it was just uh, I ended up getting a, kind of a met- metabolic syndrome, um, where my body just wasn't processing its, the food the way it, the way it should, and um, and it was it was awful. I mean, I I not only not only to have not only to have your mind suffer, but then your body to suffer as well. It's just doing damage upon damage. It's uh, it's like a double whammy, you know. Yeah. But what's trying to make you better is also compounding your health. Yeah, it's it's a it's a catch twenty two, and there's a there's a lot of disagreement about um, medis- uh, medicating people, but it's really a matter of health, and I really do think medication is crucial. Um, I think that it um it creates a foundation um for people to get better, and I think the problem is though is the wrong medication. And there are a lot of wrong medications out there. There are medications that a lot of people say take away personality, take away oneself. And those, I believe me, I've been on those medicines, and they're, they're just like a lobotomy. It really is just the most awful thing. Um, but when you get on the right medicine, it creates that foundation for oneself to, to get better from. Um, and finding the right medication is a process, isn't it? Oh, it took me seven years to find the right medicine. Um, I went, I was, I think I've been on just about every single psychotropic drug. Um, that's really when my life turned around, started turning around was when I got onto, um, Lamictal. I was on Lamictal and, um, it is something kind of lifted from me. And, um, also I also had a hospitalization. The one I, the story I told you about, uh, Dr. C at, at um, at McLean hospital. And it was a it was a terrible it was a terrible experience that actually propelled me into a different life. With a different medication, or it was a combination. I realized that I had to accommodate my illness um, through the hospitalization and that bureaucracy and that alone feeling. Um, being um, on a stretcher, tied down to a stretcher, strapped down to a stretcher, on the listening to the ruts on the highway on the way to Pembroke Hospital. I realized, I say to myself, no one in the world would believe that, that, I'm, that I shouldn't be here because I'm just another mentally ill person. And I realized while I was in the hospital and through that experience that um, not only do I need help, but I really need to help myself too because mm-hmm. um, I, I'm who I, can, I really have to rely on. And that comes back to developing that relationship with oneself again. Now, are you on other medication besides Lamictal? 
yes, I'm also on an injectable Risperdal Consta. Um, okay. It's had amazing results as well. So I guess the take-home message for folks out there is hang in there and keep trying in terms of your medications. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing to say. Um, I know that some of your listeners uh, will completely disagree, and they'll just they realize the hell that they've gone through, or they've seen the hell that their loved ones have gone through, and it's a very tricky issue. Um, I have a cousin who has OCD, and he's um, he's been trying holistic medicine for his OCD, but um, it's not really working very well. And you have to ask yourself, you have to maybe have a combined approach, not only to holistic medicine, but also uh, Western medicine, and um, you know, attack it with a two two prong attack, and remember the good things to put in your body, and and also um, and also some some of the science behind it too, the medical science. Um, how how do you deal with stress? Does stress um, you know increase your symptoms? Does how do you deal with it? Yeah, um, exercise that definitely does it. Motion. Um, it's so strange because I, you wouldn't think that lying in bed would be a stressful thing, <laughs> but, um, but, but it is. It can be very stressful. I know that just lying there um, when the first year, a couple of years of my illness was that this raging um, symptoms would be going on in my head, and, and I'd be there, and I'd be in a state of anxiety, but, you know, I have a pillow under my head. It would seem so ironic, and um, really getting up out of that is what's going to stop the anxiety in bed. <laughs> um, that's really the the running and the the um, the good the good motion. Get the blood flowing. You know, you have to get out of the house. Um, you mentioned in one of our earlier segments how um, you keep the fact that you have a mental illness away from your friends. Is that something you do for yourself protection, or because you don't believe people will understand? Or well. At the time of writing the book, I had concealed it from one of my, from my best friend, um, mm-hmm. and I recently told him that I had schizophrenia. Uh, the reason I didn't tell him was because throughout the course of our friendship, as much as I, you know, he's a valued friend and you know we've gone through a lot together, he's always he's made very derogatory comments about mental illness, talking about people mm-hmm. you know, that are that are you know crazy on the street, and that was his his view of it. And that's when I realized, I said, you know, I can't keep my friend in the dark, not only about myself, but also about this. After I've, you know, after I've done this and I've written this book, I can't, I can't really morally justify not only keeping it a secret from my friend, but also having him live in the shadow of everything that I'm, that I'm, I'm trying to help people and, and change society. So, so I told him and he was extremely supportive. He was, he said that he thought I was a better friend than ever and that um, some of the pieces fit in together, and he realized that that um, that that it was a, that it was something that um, that was an honorable struggle to go through. Does he still make those comments? No, no. He since then he's uh, done a lot of research. And believe me, I've told him a lot of things about um, about about schizophrenia. I've drilled it into him. Well, that's good. You've enlightened one mind, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk with Ben more about his journey. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Ready for a revolution in diet and health? Confused about what to eat and how to prioritize your health concerns? Let's turn conventional wisdom on its head and rethink the old rules. Good health means real food, sound sleep, great supplements, and the right exercise. Join holistic nutritionist Beverly Meyer for the Primal Diet Modern Health Show. She'll help you rewrite your human owner's manual. Tune in Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, this is Mary Woods, and our guest today is uh, Benjamin Boone, who's been sharing with us his journey from having been diagnosed with schizophrenia the day after he graduated from college um, until 10 years later where he is, um, you know, working with other people. He is a spokesperson. He will go out and um, try to educate folks on mental illness. He's written um, a book called Minority of the Mind, which is uh, very illuminating. If you really want to see what it's like to have a mental illness, um, this is a good read. It, it kind of helps you kind of get in there and understand what it's really like from from an individual's perspective and really the discrimination and stigma that they are exposed to and how that just complicates um, anyone's mental illness or substance use disorder or whatever um, illness they're trying to recover from. So, uh, Ben, could you read us another segment from your book? Sure. Um, well, I'd like to talk a little bit about my experience, actually, um, with my parents involving uh, with, their, with the family dynamics of, of what happened. Um, when I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, no one really gave them a perspective uh, or, a, or any information about how to get help. Um, the story ha- is that um, I was brought to McLean Hospital. I went to McLean Hospital voluntarily, and they uh, they found out uh, very little information as they went along. They they, they asked, um, is, "Is he is he going to be okay?" And the nurse would say, "Oh, well, he's psychotic." And my mother said, "Well, are you giving him anything for it?" And she was very curt. So I stayed at McLean for about three three weeks, and very little was given to divulge them as information until one day. They were brought into the hospital, and they were brought into a little teeny tiny dirty cramped room, and 
there was one social worker present who it was her last day, and there was my doctor, and they told them that your son has schizophrenia. It's a lifelong illness, and he'll probably require many hospitalizations in his lifetime. They had they were broadsided. They had no. They they just they didn't know how. What did this? How did this play into? Um, the happiness that they expect, that any parent expects for their child, and they were devastated. And in the same breath that that, um, that the doctor had said, your son has schizophrenia, he said, you have to go down to the bursar's office and pay pay for the hospital bill, or we can't treat your son here. And make sure to get to Mary, get to Mary before she she um, she goes to lunch. It was, it was awful. <laughs> And um, and so no one gave no one helped them give them any information no no um, no information my parents had to, at the time their cell phones went around so they were feeding feeding money into the payphone trying to find DMH services trying to find out information and because schizophrenia is a very expensive illness and financial things have to be in place so the solution to or at least what can help this situation is to have not only a peer movement among peers helping peers with schizophrenia but also families helping families with schizophrenia, and that families should be present when, when other families get the news, and they should be there to support them. It should be an intervention team. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, the wear and tear and the stress on everyone um, when there's any chronic illness in the family, be it um, schizophrenia or... Um, you know, epilepsy or uh, acute asthma, it's, um, it, everybody in the family is affected by it and um, everyone needs support and everyone needs to learn how to live with it. And, um, you know, I, I can't underscore enough that families are part of the solution and they're part of people's recovery and when families are involved, people do better. Absolutely, and the, the way the way really to have to to it's it's not just it's 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 devastating on both sides. It's devastating for for the child who um, who who had a relationship that may be very changed, um, and it's very difficult for the parents who had a relationship that's very changed. And um, there are family dynamic issues that that really need to be addressed. And I do I talk a lot about that in some of the counseling that I do on the peer counseling. I do peer counseling over telephone peer counseling. Um, you can find out more information about that by going to www.minorityofmind.com, and that's also where my book can be found as well. Um, so I talk a lot about family dynamics, daily living issues, ways, creative ways, tricky ways sometimes to get better. And a lot of that includes um, approaches that families can use to help their children can you give us one approach that's effective? Well, it's definitely an effective. The effective approach is 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 that is giving time for the for the person to be alone as well as trying to bring them out of out of their aloneness. And that's a very tricky medium to to um, to run. Um, but it's crucial because if a person feels as though they're no longer who they were, if they feel like they're completely different people. That's not the approach to use. Life is a continuation. A story is a continuation. And it's not, the life isn't over once, once you have mental illness. Um, a rich life can be led. And it's something to keep in mind that although 
things may be going wrong in one's mind, it doesn't mean that we can't empower ourselves. It's such a powerful message. Um, I wish we had a neon sign with that <laughs> because um, that's not how the world thinks, Ben. <laughs> you know, um, we really need to get that message out there. Um, I think that uh, an important thing with families, too, is, you know, um, giving the family support so they can go back and be the family person and not the care manager or not the case manager or not the crisis intervener so that um, mom can be mom and dad can be dad and siblings can be siblings and grandparents can be grandparents and they don't have to step in and take that role that fundamentally changes that relationship. Absolutely. And you can't treat the person like they're a different person after they're diagnosed. Right. That's that creates a whole set, set of problems, and uh, the dynamics may change. Um, my parents took on a much more nurturing role for me, and I had always been such an independent person, traveling to Europe when I was a teenager and writing books, and and um, suddenly I was the, I was this person who needed help, and um, it created a different role. And there were times we had we had, we had screaming matches about about um, my mother would say, "Oh, you're taking your medication. You know, you're you sure you're taking your medication?" and is a very mental illness can be a loss of of, um, of autonomy of independence, and so it is definitely important to care for the person, but also realize that 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 the that the dynamic for the person in their life and the independence is something that really has to be focused on. And to balance the fear with the independence, you know, the fear of losing your son, the fear of your son losing his mind balanced with the need at developmental need to, to gain independence and to self-actuate. So and that, that's, where, that, that's where experiences come in because experiences are something that happen not only to oneself, but they can happen with another person. And so to, ex- to do new experiences, to go out and try something different, you, know, to, you really have to look at the illness when you're a family and when you're a mother or a father, you have to look at it creatively. You have to think to yourself, okay, well, let me see. When I, um, how about we go out and do something that we've never done before and create these memories that are now, that are, that are great memories because life can be very, life isn't over. Um, life can be different and different can be great. And allowing, as a parent, allowing your, your child to grow up who has a disability too. Um, yes, absolutely. I, and I'm sure that's a struggle for most folks, it for is. most parents. It is. It's a struggle on both ends. Um, ben, do you have any advice before we um, close our show for folks who may be listening? For yeah, young, well, young if, you'd like, if you'd like to know more about, um, about my life coaching and also if you'd like to buy a copy of Minority of Mind, um, you, can, you can get it up at www. Dot minorityofmind.com. Um, you're a great writer, Ben, and I hope that people will get your book and read it. And um, you have a powerful message. So, so thank you for taking time with us today. Well, thank you, Mary, for allowing me to share my story. And thank you, listeners, for um, being interested in my perspective. Have a great week, everyone. 
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.